0: If you could get in a time machine and go back to any moment in history, let's set aside all the Bible characters, okay? Let's just take all the Bible characters and put them aside because that's not fair. Uh, If you could get in a time machine and go anywhere, where would you go? Who would you talk to? What person would you sit across from in history just to chat with? If you could have anybody, who would it be? Now, There might be a number of different answers across this room. Some might be famous historical figures, perhaps from America. For me, I'm probably going back to the Revolutionary War days, somewhere in there. Perhaps some of you might be Abraham Lincoln or maybe some other really famous person. Perhaps it might be somebody who did something incredibly great, but I can guarantee you one thing's for certain. You're not going back to talk to the custodian in the Roman Colosseum in 1st century Rome. I promise you're not going back talk to that person, whoever that was. As important as their job might have been, you're you're not going back there, I'm assuming. You have in your mind someone who is great, and you define that greatness in a multitude of ways, maybe, and it might be a little bit different across all of us, but I guarantee you, you want to go back and you want to talk to somebody who's powerful, who was great, who did something profound, and probably they are also going to be pretty wealthy. Because, to be quite honest, that's all our society really values. It's all any society really values. Are the rich, the famous, and the powerful. You don't really hear the stories. Maybe a custodian in first century Rome did something really incredible, but you never hear his story. Because he wasn't powerful. He wasn't deemed by society to be important. And if you were going back in a time... Time travel scenario to visit with anybody, it probably wouldn't be them. In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to take that notion of power, of prestige, of importance that the world offers and turn it on its head. Let's look in our passage at Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them, called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would open up this text in front of us. That you would help us to discern the truth therein. That you would open our hearts that we might obey what we find there. And I pray that you would do all of this because you love us and we see that love in Christ that you have given to us for our salvation. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's one of the more humorous stories in the New Testament. I think anytime I read this, this story, I always have to laugh to myself because there's a special relationship between a boy and his mom. Yeah? You know this? I think... Most of us kind of realize this. There is some sort of special relationship. It's hard to categorize between a a boy and his mom. And any boy mom can attest that often this is true, that special relationship. And what this passage tells me is that that's been true for a long time. So for at least 2,000 years here, we've got evidence of that truth. The only thing missing here in this story is an argument that probably happened just before this between Zebedee and the mom. As they're arguing back and forth with each other and Zebedee's telling her, you know, you just got to let them stand on their own two feet. They got to do it themselves. They're not always going to have you around. They've got to grow up when I was their age. You know, all of those things. To which she probably responded, if Jesus only knew how great my sons are, then of course, here's the Messiah, the prince of the kingdom of heaven, and he doesn't realize the two rare gems that he has in these sons of Zebedee. They've just escaped his notice, you know. Now, I, when I read the text, often the, the humorous side of the text is the first one that, that gets my attention. We spend a lot of time in the office talking about the humorous parts of the text that's, that's happening here, but I don't think that that's the first thing that Matthew's intending for us to see. I don't think that Matthew's intention here is just to make us laugh. Actually, this story is a couple of things simultaneously. On the surface, this passage is going to show us the spiritually blind and incredibly dense attitude of the, the apostles or the disciples. The unbelievable misunderstanding of on their part of who Jesus is and what He came to do. They just simply do not get it. And we're kind of prepared for that level of misunderstanding. We saw just a couple of weeks ago, it was Peter who's responding to Jesus, you remember, and he doesn't quite grasp what Jesus is there to do. He seems to misunderstand the concept of how rewards work in the kingdom of heaven. How much are we going to re- be repaid? How, how are we, what, what are we going to get if we've left everything? D- they don't seem to grasp it. In fact, we should probably think of the disciples. Anytime we read them in the Gospels, we should probably think of the disciples, in, especially before the resurrection, in the way that Luke describes them in Luke 19.11, where the disciples supposed, he says, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. That's how we should think of them responding to Jesus. They think it's all going to happen, bada bing, bada boom, right now. And then even after his resurrection, if you'll remember at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Luke tells us again in Acts 1-6 that the disciples, just before Jesus ascends, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They think it's, it's about to happen right now. So on the surface, this passage is definitely showing us that there is a, a big misconception of Jesus on the part of the disciples. They don't totally grasp it. They don't understand it. But then underneath all of that is also a lesson for them on what Jesus' mission is and how it actually works. And then from that, we also understand that it's part of our mission as well. It informs us about our mission. As we draw closer to December 25th, we start thinking about the manger scene. We start thinking about Mary and and the Magi and and. You know, the shepherds and all of those kinds of things, but our hearts really should be focusing on the reason for Jesus' is coming. That's where, that's where Christmas for us is really special. When we not just look at the manger scene for what it is, but actually understand the, the meaning behind it. This, this child is coming into the world for a reason. Not only do we understand who he is, but we understand that there's something that he's doing and his mission. What he's going to accomplish in His coming actually informs our own mission for the journey ahead of us. This morning, He's going to connect those two for us. Really for the disciples, but also for us. And so I want to look at this text on two levels. First is, is Jesus reorienting, if you will, the disciples as to what following Him really looks like. And then the second is Jesus explaining what He came to do, and then us talking about what that actually means for our mission. So, two things that I want us to see before we apply this text to our own mission. The first is that discipleship is an invitation to suffer. Discipleship is an invitation to suffer. As I mentioned last week, Jesus and the disciples are traveling in the midst of a a really large uh, caravan of people that are coming all the way probably from Galilee, And as we'll see next week, Matthew even calls them in verse 29, a great crowd they are following uh, with Jesus. And the reason that I think that's important is because it helps us understand in a few weeks when Jesus goes into Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, there's a group of people, a large crowd that is around him, and they're laying down their cloaks and on the ground and things like that, and they're hailing him as the Messiah. And that's likely this group right here. As he travels into Jerusalem on a donkey, that caravan that's around him praising him is largely made up of this group that's following with him. And the reason that that is important is because that's a different crowd probably than the ones that we see uh, just at the end of the week that are yelling, crucify him. This crowd has come with him since Galilee and they've they've seen a lot of his miracles and they know more about him they know who he is and they're announcing to Jerusalem as he walks in this is who you've got here Jerusalem do you know who is standing before you it's it's the king we've been watching this guy for a long time and we know that this is the one some of the people in this crowd actually are going to be the ones that are standing around the cross When Jesus is crucified, and in particular of those people, many of the women are going to be there. It's the men, many of the men that actually flee. And the women are noted as staying. And many of these women become Jesus' truest supporters. In fact, Luke 8 tells us that a lot of these women were the financial contributors to Jesus' ministry. Perhaps their husbands weren't converted, maybe, but they gave out of the, the, what they had to Jesus' ministry. And this is important for our passage, because we have this woman introduced to us as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, we're not told her name in this passage, and we don't know tons about the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But there are some details in various Gospels that we can piece together and perhaps get a bigger picture of who this woman is, which gives us some context for the passage that we're reading. Uh, For one, Matthew's going to tell us a little bit later in his Gospel, in chapter 27, verses 55 to 56, there were also many women there, this is around the cross, looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's a different Mary. That's a different James. And the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So Mark gives us, uh, when we get to Mark's Gospel, so that's Matthew's Gospel, when we get to Mark's Gospel, he gives us nearly the exact same report with one exception. Instead of calling her the mother of the sons of Zebedee, he calls her by name. And he calls her Salome that's important so there's a pretty good chance that John and James's mom's name is Salome now more interesting than that is that when we get to the gospel of John that would be the son of this woman John doesn't call her his mother that would give away his identity John doesn't call her by her first name have you ever tried to call your mother by her first name John calls her Jesus' mother's sister. John calls her Mary's sister. Now, we can't be 100% certain. There could be some other explanations, perhaps. But there is compelling evidence to suggest that this person that comes up to Jesus, kneeling before him, is crazy Aunt Salome with cousin James and cousin John in tow behind her. This may be why she feels so bold as to approach Jesus and ask Him for this favor because in all likelihood she's family. Also note, James and John are not drug here against their will. They're here by their own volition. They're here with Salome or they're here with their mom. They're not standing behind her going, Mom, cut it out! It's not cool in front of Jesus. They're not doing that. They're there, and they're they're not being dragged against their will uh, to Jesus' side. Their mother is asking a favor on their behalf to Jesus. Maybe it's possible they even put her up to it. You can tell because after she asks Jesus the conversation immediately shifts to James and John, willing participants there behind her who say, we are able, which we'll get to in a little bit. See, there's no reason why a mother wouldn't want this for her sons. Moms, isn't this what you want for your children? For them to grow up and go to college and have a good job? and get some sense of security and self-sufficiency. You want them to do a job that makes, you, makes them happy, that provides for them. Dads, isn't this what you want for your kids, for them to grow up and be self-sufficient so they don't have to live at home? Isn't this what you want? Of course, this is what you want. Well, for, for her, there's no better sense of security and self-sufficiency and preservation, and power, and prominence, and and all of those things, than being at the right and left hands of the Messiah in His kingdom. There's, There's one big problem. They've apparently missed what Jesus has just said, which is, I'm going into Jerusalem, and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And apparently, for the disciples, that went right over their head they clearly didn't understand what Jesus just said in fact the request that they make through their mother reflects more of what Jesus told Peter just a few verses ago when he told told him remember y'all are going to sit on twelve thrones around me it seems as though James and John heard that and probably turned to their mom did you hear that We're going to sit on twelve thrones. Which of those twelve thrones am I going to be sitting on? So James and John are now calling shotgun seats on the thrones in the kingdom of heaven at Jesus' right and left. And so Jesus asks them point blank if they can drink his cup in verse 22. The cup that he's talking about there is the cup of the fury of God's wrath. And, and we know that it's pretty evident from the Old Testament. That's a common image that's used by a lot of the Old Testament prophets as a picture of the wrath of God. When the wrath of God falls upon you, you are taking the cup of the fury of His wrath, and you are, you are drinking it. Now, there are lots of places in the, in the Old Testament where this shows up, but a couple of them, Jeremiah 25, 15-16, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. This is God talking to the prophet. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. By the way, this is the same cup that Jesus refers to and will pray about in the garden when He's about to go to the cross in Matthew 26, 39, when He says, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. So imagine how crazy it sounds when Jesus says, Are you able to drink My cup? A cup of the fury of the wrath of God. Are you able to drink that? And James and John say, we are able. Oh, you don't know what you're saying. Can you drink the fury of the wrath of God? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We can. Yeah. Pfft. Yeah. A cup. Oh, that's not a big deal. I drink lots of cups. It's good. It's fine. You got to think that they didn't know what they were agreeing to, they didn't fully understand. But then it gets a little scarier for them in verse 23. When Jesus says, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Well, they certainly won't drink the fury of the wrath of God, but what he's referring to is that they will suffer for Jesus' sake, they will participate with Jesus in his suffering as they suffer later on in life. Remember, Jesus is the one that will appear to Paul, uh, Saul, on the road to Damascus and say, Why are you persecuting me? He's killing the church. And Jesus calls to him and says, You're, you're persecuting me? You're, you're touching my body? They're going to suffer with Him in that kind of suffering as He drains the cup of the fury of the wrath of God down to the dregs. They're going to suffer with Him. Christ's body entirely suffers with Him. Even even us, remember on the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus, uh, in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They're associating with Christ when Christians suffer, when they're, when they're persecuted, when they suffer all kinds of things, everything from vile words... He says, spoken against you, impugned motives, slander, gossip, violence. All of that is sharing in the sufferings of Christ, drinking from the cup that Jesus drank from. The difference is, when Jesus drains the cup of the fury of God's wrath and we participate with him, it's no longer punishment, it's a blessing. He changes suffering to a blessing. Remember last week, I said that when someone is handed over to the nations, someone is handed over to the Gentiles, they're suffering the wrath of God. That's what that means. Well, the Bible is clear that Jesus has absorbed the wrath behind it. So you're still being handed over to the world. And you're still suffering. The difference is you're not facing the wrath of God when you do. So Jesus is telling His disciples here, oh, you're going to suffer. There's no doubt about that. You're going to suffer more than you know. John is going to be exiled on the Isle of Patmos, amongst many other things. James is going to be killed by the sword in Acts 12. But I want you to see the absolute irony in what Jesus says here. In the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to take his throne. In fact, in all the Gospels, Jesus is going to take his throne. But you know what his throne looks like? It looks like a wooden cross. And above him is going to be written his title, King of the Jews. In spite of the protest of the Jews, it shouldn't say the King of the Jews because, secret, that reads too much like a title. It's supposed to read his charge. He says he's King of the Jews. No, no, no. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. Above him is his title, King of the Jews. And on his back is his throne that he is sitting on as he has taken it. And before him, even the Gentiles are going to bow down and one of them is going to say, surely this is the Son of God. It's his throne. His throne is his cross. Here James and John are asking, can we sit to your right and to your left? And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You have no idea. Ironically, in the Gospel, His throne is going to be occupied by Him and to His right and to His left are going to be two thieves. They're thinking glory. They're thinking thrones. They're thinking gold and power and prestige. And Jesus is saying, did you hear what I just said about crucifixion? They don't get the glory though. Without suffering. They don't get to glory without suffering. Paul tells us or preaches in the book of Acts, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is offering discipleship with an invitation to you to suffer. You don't get in scot-free. Everybody gives up a whole lot of things. That's the first layer of this text. The misunderstanding of the kingdom they're a part of that Jesus is, is offering to them for His disciples and He's inviting them to suffer with Him. So we're taking that with us to point two. Okay, So here's point two. Jesus came to demonstrate humility and truly serve His people. Jesus came to demonstrate humility and truly serve His people. The, the other ten disciples, obviously after this whole scene plays out, the other ten disciples look on these two disciples with disdain Man, I can't believe you had your mom do that, right? I just, I interpreted that's probably what they're saying. But most assuredly, they think James and John basically tried to elbow them out of position in the kingdom. They were trying to jockey for position and take those shotgun seats, and they're trying to work out, work them to the outer uh, fringes. And so they take exception as to how that was accomplished by getting your mom, obviously, to go up and and ask on your behalf. And so Jesus recognizes what that has done to the twelve disciples, and so there's some indignation that's risen up amongst them, but beyond that, there's a misconception about power and authority in the kingdom across them all. It seems that none of them actually understand what they're doing, so He takes the opportunity to correct it. But what is He going to do? He's going to use His own ministry as an example of how power and authority are given in the kingdom of heaven. He's going to use his own ministry as an example. And how do you know that? Well, because in verse 28, if you look at it, he, said, he starts verse 28 with, even as, and then he tells them the reason why he's come. In other words, I'm about to illustrate for you in what I am going to do, in how I'm going to live my life, in the fact that I'm going to the cross, I am about to illustrate for you exactly what I'm telling you to do. I'm going to illustrate for you what I'm getting at. The way they currently think about power, the way they currently think about authority, is the only way they've ever seen it done, that they've ever seen it accomplished, by coercion. That's the only way. I mean, think about how many ways you've seen power accomplished power grabbed by coercion by force that's nearly it 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 nearly is always grabbed by a war at first there's a war then after the war whoever wins the war has control and they go about coercing all the people and putting them in submission under them because those people that are in submission under the people of power fear for their lives so they respond in obedience They rule over people through coercion and through force. This is the way all earthly kingdoms, he says the Gentiles, and by that he means all earthly kingdoms, this is the way the Gentiles exercise authority over people. They rule over them with coercion. This is the way they assume Jesus' kingdom is going to work as well. Right? He's going to walk into Jerusalem, and he's going to turn the tables on the Romans, and for once, James and John... And the rest of the disciples, too, are going to be in positions of, of authority and power, and the Romans are going to bow down to them. They're going to have the sword. But the rest of the disciples are mad that James and John beat him to the punch. However, in Christ's kingdom, the position of authority is servant, it's the slave. He even goes as far as to use the word slave at the end of verse 27. Now, some of this is lost on us because we don't live mostly in a class-based system in America. In fact, we sort of pride ourselves on the American dream or the American story of going from rags to riches. And someone in a generation can go from having absolutely nothing to having a a tremendous amount of, of prosperity. But if we were in a class system... There would be certain jobs that were be that would be unavailable to you. There would be a ceiling at which you could not extend yourself beyond. That's not really true here necessarily, but but in a class system, in a strict class system, you couldn't go beyond that ceiling. If you were in the working class, you couldn't exceed much beyond a working class. Now, a working class person might have plenty of money. A working class person might have uh, enough to survive and, and eat on for weeks. In fact, we see Zebedee in the Gospels. It probably has a pretty lucrative fishing business, and he's, but he's still a part of the working class, as well as the rest of these disciples, for the most part, are too. Even if they have a considerable amount of money, the social circles that they're going to be working in and surrounding themselves by are going to be mostly working class. But just as you would have a ceiling that you couldn't extend yourself beyond, there would also be a floor that you wouldn't want to fall through lest you be undignified. So for someone in a working class, to fall into the class of slavery would be an undignified position. So slaves and servants, they're often indebted to people. Their rights are restricted. They can't just do everything they want. Certainly they don't have the kinds of freedoms that... True freedmen have. Even some servants or slaves that have worked their way up in their master's house still don't have that kind of freedom. So for Jesus to command the disciples not only to not lead by coercion, but then charge them to lead through slavery, that's a bold statement. And it's counter to and radically different from anything they've experienced in the past. It doesn't even make sense to us. Lead through slavery? How do you lead through slavery? That, doesn't, that it doesn't even mesh with our categories. But the disciple of Jesus is to serve in a lifetime of ministry. That's his point. By the time we get to the New Testament, where New Testament writers are beginning to, to write, not just the Gospels, but the rest of the epistles and things like that. That term, slave or servant, they wear as a badge of honor. Paul refers to himself as a servant or a slave in Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Galatians 1.10, Philippians 1.1, 1, 1, Colossians 4.12, 2 Timothy 2.24, and Titus 1.1. 1, 1. Six times Paul refers to himself as a slave of Christ or a servant of Christ. James the brother of Christ calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ in James 1:1. 1, 1. Peter says it in 2 Peter 1:1. 1, 1. Jude in Jude 1. John in Revelation 1:1. 1, 1. They all see themselves as slaves of Jesus Christ because this is the understanding of the Christian life that they are adopting, that they saw themselves as servants of Christ, that they were rewarded by him that He's commanded us to serve others, and therefore we serve out of obedience to Him. We're slaves to Him. So what the authors in the New Testament are saying is that they can be a slave to anyone. I can be a slave to you. I can be a servant to you. It's no big deal. Because I'm really a slave or a servant to Christ behind you. And He's commanded me to serve, so I can serve gladly. They're serving past the person to Christ who is above all. You need to understand, though, the premise of slavery. Just think about the nature of slavery itself. It's that you can force someone to do something for you. Why? Why would they do it? Why will they participate in that level of service? Because they fear for their own lives. That's why. When given the choice of death or serving you, they choose to serve you as your slave. Why? Because it's better than death. That's the thought, right? That's the premise of slavery or servitude. But for the Christian, Christ has so freed him or her that death is no longer a fear. He's not trying to save his own life. In fact, you can kill him if you want to. All you're going to do is translate him from this life into eternity if you kill him. Death becomes inconsequential. What is a slave like? That doesn't fear death. A Christian. That's what a slave is like that doesn't fear death. So now he serves out of joy for his true master, who will give him eternal life on the other end. So Christ then has opened for the Christian an endless amount of service to others. You realize that is a kind of power you cannot buy. That's the kind of power you can't earn. I'm free to serve anyone. Because I'm not worried about my own life. There's countless stories throughout history of Christians who walked into complete and total disaster areas riddled with plague serving people who were sick and dying knowing that they, too, could contract the illness and die. Why? Because they weren't afraid that they would die. Saying, all it can do is translate us from one life to the next. And that life is far better. Paul walked into the figurative lion's den of ministry, often starting riots in towns that he went to. And when he's pressed, he says, look, I don't know what's better to stay here in ministry or to die and be with Christ. Well, to die and be with Christ is far better. But if I get to stay here, I go on doing ministry, being persecuted. Sounds like a great alternative, doesn't it? But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. that's a servant who understands that no one can hold him down. That he can joyfully serve no matter what. That doesn't mean everyone has to become a preacher or a missionary in order to fulfill their call of service. Nor does it mean everyone has to go and be this or that or any particular form of service does anyone have to take up in order to feel some obligation or some sense of obligation. In fact, 11 of these disciples, outside of Judas, 11 of these disciples are going to be given a specific task in ministry that they are going to perform after Jesus leaves, and they're going to sacrifice everything in order to do that one task, which is preaching and teaching the Word of God. That's the number one job of every pastor that has been left in the wake of the apostles is to preach and teach the Word of God, training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's chiefly through preaching and teaching the Word of God, training and equipping the saints for the work of ministry. But each member of the church also has a function. And we read about it in Romans twelve four to 8 and in many other places too, but Paul says it this, this way in Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And he stops because he ran out of space, not because he ran out of things to say. All the while... We're to commit ourselves to serving as if we are serving Christ, but at the same time, we are also to serve in the same way that Christ served us. That's the point. That's what he's getting to. You are to serve in the same way that I'm serving you. Paul brings this to mind in the passage that we read just a minute ago, and I'm going to read part of it again. Have this mind among you, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, this is a famous passage, and I know we read it just a minute ago, And I know you're probably thinking of the rest of the the passage in your mind, but it's so famous and we're so familiar with it that we often forget what it's even really about. But in this passage, Paul is challenging the church at Philippi and us to have the same mind as Jesus when we take up ministry in His name. He could have maintained His position, but instead He came down to us. He took on human form. He humbled himself to the point that they killed him. Jesus is doing the same thing here with the disciples in Matthew. He's telling them, serve even as I'm about to serve you. Serve in that same capacity. And in the end, Christ's service to us is going to result in his crucifixion, it's going to result in his death. He's being mocked and ridiculed in front of everybody. He impoverished himself to do that. He gives his life. He suffers the wrath of God and ransoms his people from the grave. And as the angel said at the beginning of the book of Matthew, he's coming to save his people from their sins. This is how it's going to be accomplished. Christ, in other words, is offering his own life as compensatory payment for mine. The disciples are going to watch this, and in turn, they are going to have to give their own lives in service as they establish the church. So then, what does that mean for you and me? Jesus' coming tells us a great deal about our mission. The mission for the Christian and the challenge Jesus is giving to his disciples is right here. Spend your life. Every ounce of it. Spend it all. Expend every ounce of energy you have in service to others for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is telling them. Spend every ounce of energy you have in giving yourself to others for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because the more you struggle through life because you are giving yourself to others, the more you are becoming like Christ Himself. But this is often where we go astray and where we start to complain. I'm chief among them is when we have to give a lot of ourselves. Because we think, God must hate me. Look at all the things that I'm having to do. Does he see me? Does he know where I'm at? But I I suspect, Christian, that when you die and you're translated from this life to the next, you will realize that was his mercy to you. Making you more and more And more like Christ Himself. Because here's the reality we believe that the reward of eternal life to come is worth it. And so we can use every last drop of our blood for the sake of the kingdom of God, knowing that not one ounce of it will be wasted. See, this is the privilege of being a Christian. When you serve others, when you serve others, it's not as though there's some life out there that you're missing out on. You know that? Think about that for just a second. When you, inevitably, service to others is going to involve you giving up a lot of things, it's going to involve you giving up a lot of freedom. It's going to be a, a, involve you giving up a lot of comfort. It's going to involve you giving up a lot of money. It's going to be, involve you opening up your home sometimes until, and inviting some, sometimes awkward people that you may not really get along with that well in at your dinner table. It's going to involve a lot of stuff that, to be honest, is just not comforting. But because we believe in life to come, We don't believe the lies of the world that says, hey, when you give up all those things, you're missing out on life. That's what the world believes. Oh, well, you're you're just a saint. You missed out on so much in your life because you gave up all those things to serve those people. You missed out on so much. You could have been on vacations. You could have had houses. You could have had cars. You could have had a number of different things. You could have had a much bigger house. You could have had all these things. And you gave all those things up, and you missed out on all that. That's not what the Christians believe. We believe that life to come is where it's at. I don't want to retire, honestly. I don't want to retire. I know that as I get to the end of my life, I'm going to have less and less energy. I'm going to have more and more health issues. It's all downhill from here. We know that. But that's okay. With whatever He's given me, even if it's an hour of my day, with whatever He has given me, I want to spend that amount of energy in service to His kingdom. Because I want to retire on the shores of glory. I don't want to retire here. That's the reason, by the way, retirement isn't in the Bible. And when you say that, people go, what do you mean retirement is in the Bible? I mean, it's literally not in the Bible. You spend it all. Every drop of blood, every ounce of energy. Don't leave anything on the table. There's going to be a host of things you don't get done. There's going to be a host of things you can't accomplish. But you're leaving every ounce of energy on the table. And it's one thing to leave your job. It's another thing to set aside all activity altogether. Sometimes for our retired people, that opens up the world to them of opportunities to serve that they didn't have before. I don't mean quitting your job. I mean retiring from service to the kingdom of heaven. It's not in there. There's two people that I want to talk to. They may be in the same group. The first is the person who's absolutely exhausted. This year has been one of the hardest on record, no doubt. Especially for for many of you in this congregation. Many of you even watching online. It's been difficult, not least of which the COVID stuff. Death, family drama issues, and all of that is on top of the COVID stuff. Moms have had to rearrange schedules. Dads have had to rearrange schedules. People have had, their whole lives have just gone, you know, been upended. People are caring for their parents in facilities they can't even visit them. And a lot of this year has left you absolutely and totally worn out, and you feel ready to quit. And to be honest, it's hard to really blame you. Because it's difficult. But remember, I wish I could say, by the way, that there was some magic switch. Here, if you just knew this, then everything would be better. And it's not. There's nothing that I can say to make all that go away. There's no truth in Scripture that you can read and all of a sudden be fine. There is a tremendous amount of suffering that comes in this life. Some of it can be articulated, and some of it can't. And sometimes there's this feeling in your heart that, like, yeah, yeah, I just don't want to get up today. I just don't really have that kind of energy. But here's what we know is true in Scripture. Is that He sustains us by His grace, but only enough for today. He doesn't give you three years from now. He doesn't give you that kind of grace. And for for Paul, for Peter, for the apostles, for all of their disciples, for the, the entire church, it, the message is the same. You have exactly enough grace to make it through today. You don't have enough grace for tomorrow. You need to use it all by the end of the day. You don't get to store it up and, and have rollover minutes. You don't get that kind of, you don't get rollover grace. You have only enough for today. So it's okay sometimes to go to bed and and just worry and think to yourself, I just don't know if I have enough to make it through tomorrow. When you wake up the next morning, His mercies again are made new to you that day. You have enough for that day. But if you get caught looking three years down the road, well, you're going to fall. Because you haven't been given that. We're watching pastors drop like flies during COVID. And I'm convinced that after this year is over, there's going to be more pastors leave the ministry than we've ever seen before. And it's going to be tragic. And I hope I'm not one of them. I don't know that. All I know is is that he has given me enough to stand on this stage here and preach. He might kill me when I walk off. He might kill me before I go to bed tonight. Hopefully he does before we do the budget, if that's going to be the case. but I'm just kidding. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I know that he's given me enough today, and I'm going to use everything that I have for today. And I don't want to leave anything on the table. And tomorrow, I think I will find that his mercies are made new. Second, second group of people, and it may be part of the same group, are those who are desperately wondering why the Lord put you here. What is my place in the kingdom? What is my place in ministry? No, you don't have to quit your job and to go into the pastorate. But you wonder to yourself, surely he hasn't just put me here to go to my job, then come home and just go back and forth between my job Monday and Friday, and then Saturday, do nothing, watch football or whatever I do all day, and then start the same routine over. Surely he wants me to spend myself in work for the kingdom, but I don't know what that is. Some years ago, I was working in a church, and there was a, a lady that, uh, her name was Elisa. She was our church secretary, and she came to sit in my office one, one morning, and she said, "I really need to talk to you." She said, um, I f- I f-. <laughs> sorry, hold on. She said, I, "I feel just a heavy burden for unwed teenage mothers, And I don't know what to do about." it. And I asked her, I said, Do you, do you think that the Lord is, is really calling you into some sort of ministry with them? And she said, Absolutely. I can't get it off my mind. And I said, She, she said, I, I don't know what to do. What, what do I do? Where do I go? And I said, Well, do you know any pregnant, unwed teenage moms? And she said, No. And I said, Well, we need to start there. So, where did she start? She just started praying. She literally just started asking the Lord to put them in her path because, to be honest, they don't carry around signs often that they're in need of ministry. And so she just started praying. And high school counselors started calling her. She started meeting, lunch, having lunch with these counselors who were saying, I got all these pregnant moms in our high school that really need help. And so she went the next step of introducing herself to them. And then before long, she had a ministry of women in our church who were bringing these pregnant teenagers into the church left and right and providing for them diapers and wipes and clothing. And moms and families in our church were giving them used clothing, which as you know, if you're, we get the little clothes, they're not worn out. Yeah. All right? They're practically <laughs> brand new when you give them. Some of them got the tags on them still. And they're giving all these clothes, and she's got mountains of stuff that she doesn't know what to do with. And during the course of that ministry in the church, that all started with a burden on her heart to do something for somebody else. After months of it, she had been really used and abused by a lot of these girls that took advantage of her in some cases, It, it cost her money in some cases. It cost her a lot of time and energy. It wasn't months later she was in my office saying, this is really hard. And it is. But here's what I think is true. I think that is the heart of ministry in the church. The way we've come to think about ministry in the church is the staff puts a program together and then puts a bunch of money in it and tells you, hey, come be a part of it and starts recruiting people to come be a part of it. I don't think that's how ministry in the church should work. I think ministry in the church should start with a burden on your heart. What is it God has put me here to do? I want to do that. And then saying, how do I do it? in this town, Tuscaloosa, I've only been here three and a half years, and I can already tell you, there's some pressing needs in this town. From what I've heard, I had a meeting this week where I heard that this is the abortion capital of Alabama, and I'd heard that before. The stat that was quoted to me was 3,500 abortions committed in this town alone. That's 10 a day, roughly, if my math is correct. I'm not a mathemagician, but... I would say ministry to pregnant, single women is vital in this community. Education, poverty, also up there as tremendous needs in our community. But it's going to start with you in the pew getting a burden for someone and then trying to figure out how to minister to that person. That's what it's going to start with. it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you time. It may cost you money. It may cost you a ton of energy. I can guarantee you it's going to cost you that. It may cost you some awkward conversations. Some discussions you don't really want to get into. But what do the shores of glory look like? What does retirement in the kingdom of heaven look like when you walk in exhausted? How much sweeter does work look then? How much sweeter does glory look then? How much more like a grace of God given to you does all that service look like then? When you are walking into glory utterly exhausted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer is that you give to us hearts of service where we do not sit around waiting on someone to invite us to service, but we serve because we're serving you. God, forgive me for not understanding my own life that way. Forgive us all for not understanding life in your kingdom that way. Give us hearts that are bent toward being exhausted out of service for you, and may we receive every day new mercies that replenish us and give us enough grace to make it through the day that we may again exhaust ourselves. I pray that we would long evermore every single day for Christ's return knowing that that rest will be worth the work. In Jesus' name, amen.